You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 323 by Rudolf Steiner, 18 lectures, entitled Interdisciplinary Astronomy, translated by Frederick Amrine. This is Lecture 14, given on January 14, 1921. Today we'll develop further the different notes we sounded yesterday. From the material at our disposal, consisting as it does in the last resort of things observed, the true gestalt of which we seek to apprehend, from this observed material we'll try to gain ideas that lead us into the inner structure of the celestial phenomena. I'll first point to something that follows from yesterday's preliminary reflections, which were more historical in nature. We have to understand clearly that in the last resort, both the Ptolemaic system and that used by modern astronomy are attempts to synthesize in one way or another the phenomena that are observed. The Ptolemaic system and the Copernican are both attempts to comprehend within certain math-like figures what has been perceived. Parenthesis, I say perceived in quotes because in light of yesterday's lecture, it would not be enough to say, in quotes, seen. Close parenthesis. For it's precisely observation upon which all our geometry, all our calculating and measuring must ultimately be founded. At bottom, the only question is whether we're comprehending the observed facts correctly. But we also have to become intimately acquainted with the simple fact that the sciences, as they are currently practiced, take perception at face value. Their view of perception is so facile that they can't possibly arrive at any real comprehension of the observed data. Here, for example, is a question we can't escape. It springs directly from the observable facts. Parenthesis, given the short time available for these lectures, they can be presented only in the barest outlines. I haven't been able to discuss or even to set forth all the details. I can only indicate the general direction. Close parenthesis. As part of this general orientation, I've tried to show that the movements of heavenly bodies in celestial space must in some way be aligned with what's formed in the living human body, and indeed also in the organisms of animals and plants. There must be a connection. The conclusion that there has to be a connection follows from the way in which we've contemplated the facts. And I assure you, the more deeply you go into the facts, the more you'll see the connection. Let me say again, I wanted only to indicate the method, the path one can follow, in order to arrive ultimately at this result. The constitutions of humans, animals, and plants are structured in such a way that if we imagine this gestalt in a linear fashion, 
as we did, for example, in tracing with the mind's eye, EYE, the various orientations of the lemniscate passing through the human organism, we find in it a certain similarity to the systems of lines that we're able to draw when we envisage the movements of the celestial bodies. But then the question arises, what is it that actually determines this connection? Is it possible to see this connection as transparent and well-founded? In order to approach this question, we have to compare the paradigmatic assumptions underlying the Ptolemaic system with those underlying our own Copernican system of today. What is it that we're actually doing when we construct an astronomical paradigm such as the modern Copernican system by thinking, calculating, and geometrizing? We observe. Out in celestial space we observe bodies which, from the simple appearance of them, we regard as identical. I'm expressing myself cautiously, as you see. We have no right to say more than this. From their appearance to our eye, EYE, we regard these bodies as identical. A few simple experiments will reveal why caution is in order regarding statements about the external world. I draw your attention to this little experiment of no value in itself. It can teach us, nevertheless, to be careful in the way we form our human thoughts. Suppose I trained a horse to trot very regularly, which, incidentally, a horse will do in any case. Say, now I photograph the animal in twelve successive positions. I would get twelve pictures of the horse. I put them in a circle at a certain distance from myself, the onlooker. Over it all I put a drum with an aperture and make the drum rotate so that I first see one picture of the horse and then when the drum is rotated a second picture and so on. I get the appearance of a running horse. I'll imagine that a little horse is running around in a circle, but in fact that's not the case. No horse is running around. I have only been looking, in a certain way, at twelve distinct pictures of a horse, each of which stays where it is. What follows is that it's possible to evoke an appearance of movement, not only through perspective, but also in purely qualitative ways. It doesn't follow that what appears to be a movement really is a movement. Thus, whoever wants to speak with care, whoever wants to reach the truth by scrupulous investigation, has to begin by saying, whimsical as this may seem to our learned contemporaries, I look at three successive positions of what I call a heavenly body, and I assume that what underlies them is identical. So, for example, I follow the moon in its path with the underlying hypothesis that it's always the same moon. That may be right without question in the case of such a, in quotes, progredient phenomenon. What do we do then? We see what we take to be identical heavenly bodies in so-called movement. We draw lines to unite what we thus see at different places. And then we try to interpret the lines. That is what yields the Copernican system. The school from which the Ptolemaic system was derived didn't proceed that way, not originally. 
at that time people perceived with the whole of their human being, in the way I described yesterday. And inasmuch as people were thus alive and aware, perceiving with every part of their human nature, the very idea of a heavenly body that they had then was essentially different from what it later became. Someone who perceived phenomena in light of the Ptolemaic system didn't say, quote, up there is the moon, close quote. That's not what people said. That's just our own way of projecting an interpretation onto the universe. That's not what people said. Because then they would be relating the phenomenon solely to the eye, E-Y-E. They didn't do that. Rather, they related the phenomenon to the whole of their human nature. And what it then meant to them was as follows. Here I am standing on the earth. Now even as I am on the earth, I am also in the moon, for the moon is here. There's a picture. This is the earth, while the whole of that larger circle is the moon, much larger than the earth. The radius of the moon is as great as what we now call the distance of the moon. I must not say of the moon's center, from the center of the earth. That's how large the moon is within the Ptolemaic system, as it was originally framed. Elsewhere, invisible, this cosmic body develops at one end a certain process by virtue of which a tiny fragment of it becomes visible. The rest is invisible, and moreover of such a kind of substantiality that we can live within it and be permeated by it. Only at this one end does it become visible. Moreover, in relation to the earth, the entire sphere is turning, Parenthesis, incidentally, it's not a perfect sphere, but a spheroid or ellipsoid of rotation. Close parenthesis. The whole of it is turning, and with it turns the tiny little bit that's visible, that is, the visible moon. In looking at the visible moon, we're seeing only part of its full reality. See figure one. This is the conception that really prevailed. The form, at least, the picture it presents will not seem so entirely remote if you think of an analogy, that of the human or animal gamete in its development, see figure 2. You know what happens at a certain stage. While the rest of the germinal vesicle is nearly transparent, at one place it develops the germinative area, so-called, and from this area the further development of the embryo proceeds. Thus a center forms eccentrically, near the periphery, from which the rest of the embryogenesis proceeds. Compare the tiny body of the embryo with this idea of the moon, which underlay the Ptolemaic system, and you'll have a notion of how they conceived it, for it was entirely analogous to this. In the Ptolemaic conception of the universe, we may truly say, a reality was present that was completely different from the image of the moon as an illuminated orb that we see. What happened to humanity after the time when the Ptolemaic system was felt as a reality was that the inner experience, the inward bodily feeling of being immersed in the moon was completely lost. Today our experience has become restricted to that of the illuminated image. Because they no longer know it, humans of the fifth post-Atlantean epoch no longer can say that they stand within the moon, or rather that the moon pervades them. 
In their experience, the moon is only the little illuminated disk or sphere that they behold. It was from inner perceptions such as these that the Ptolemaic system of the universe was constructed. And we can regain these perceptions today if we regard things in the proper light, if we can win back the possibility of experiencing the whole of the moon again. But it's completely understandable that those who take their start from the customary idea of, in quotes, the moon, find it hard to see any such inner relation between this moon and anything inside of themselves. Actually, it's better in the end for them to reject the statement that there are influences from the moon affecting humans than to indulge in all kinds of fantastic notions. All this is changed, however, as soon as we arrive at a concept that actually corresponds to the reality. We are indeed always living in the moon, so that what truly deserves the name of moon is in reality a nexus of forces that pervades us all the time. Then it will no longer be a cause of blank astonishment that this nexus of forces should reveal itself as shaping the forms of humans and animals. It becomes intelligible that forces permeating us would have to do with the forming and configuration of our body. Such then are the ideas we must win back again. We have to realize that what's visible in the heavens is no more than a fragmentary revelation of cosmic space, which in reality is always filled with substance. If you develop this idea of being immersed in this kind of substantial nexus, you'll come to feel that it's very, very real. Our contemporary astronomical paradigm has substituted a mere thought construct for this reality. We've replaced it with that which we call gravity. We think only that there's a mutual force of attraction between what we imagine to be the body of the moon and the body of the earth. This gravitational line of force from the one to the other, if we imagine it rotating, then the figure that resulted from this rotating gravitational line would approximate what earlier astronomical paradigms called the sphere, the sphere of one or another planet. Basically what has happened is that something which was once felt to be substantial and can be experienced in that way again has been transformed into mere lines within a thought construct. You see that we have to learn to think about the whole configuration of cosmic space in a new way as filled with qualitatively differentiated substance. Today we go by the paradigm of universal gravitation. We say, for instance, that the tides are somehow due to gravitational forces exerted by the moon. We speak of gravitational force proceeding from a heavenly body, lifting the water of the sea. The other paradigm would lead us to say that the moon pervades the earth, and that when it permeates the Earth's hydrosphere, a process is initiated that plays itself out at this particular location as a raising of the water level. Elsewhere, the sphere of the moon reveals itself as the phenomenon of light. No need for us to think of any separate force of attraction. We only need to think that this sphere of the moon permeating the Earth combines with the Earth to make a single organic whole. 
in what seems to be two different processes, we're actually seeing two aspects of a single process. My reason for engaging in an historical overview yesterday was only to use it as a means of leading you to certain concepts. I could equally well have attempted to present them without any recourse to earlier paradigms, but that would have required us to proceed from anthroposophical premises. That would have led us to the same ideas. Now let's imagine the sphere of the earth here, see figure 3. I'm conceiving the solid earth now as the sphere of the earth. And now, of course, I must also conceive the sphere of the moon as having an essentially different consistency and substantiality. And, of course, I can also conceive that the contents of this space, permeated by the two spheres, are permeated by a third sphere and a fourth. Thus, in one way or another, I conceive it to be permeated by a third sphere. It might, for instance, be the sphere of the sun, which is inwardly of a quality different from that of the sphere of the moon. Then I say that as a human being I am permeated by the spheres of the sun and moon. Sun and moon stand, of course, in a reciprocal relationship to each other by virtue of their mutual interpenetration, and the expression of this reciprocal relationship is some kind of formation within the organism. And now you'll arrive at the idea that we can ultimately view what permeates the organism with a varying substantiality and what expresses itself in a specific bodily formation as belonging together. You see that the specific bodily formation is simply the result of this permeation. And what we see in the heavens, the movement of heavenly bodies, is like a visible sign. If certain conditions prevail, the boundaries of the several spheres become visible to us as phenomena of movement. What I have put before you now is essential if we are to regain more real conceptions of the inner structure of our cosmic system. Now, you can already begin to connect something more real with the idea that the human constitution has something to do with the structure of the cosmos. But as long as you see the heavenly bodies as being out there in space, you'll fail to gain clarity regarding these relationships. You do gain a clear notion the moment you see it as it really is, though I admit it gets a little uncanny to feel yourself permeated by so many spheres, just a little confusing. And there is worse to come, I would say. To begin with, we are, of course, also permeated by the sphere of the earth itself in an even more extended sense. For it's not only the solid ball on which we stand that belongs to the earth, but also the whole volume of its water and also the air. We are immersed within this extended sphere. Only the air is still very coarse compared to the effects of heavenly phenomena. Consider, then, we stand within the sphere of the earth, we stand within the sphere of the sun, in the sphere of the moon, and in many other spheres besides. Here we are in the sphere of the earth, in the sphere of the sun, in the sphere of the moon, and in others too. But let's focus on these three. And we shall say to ourselves, something in us is the outcome of the substantialities of these three spheres. What manifests itself qualitatively here is something that arouses horror, when it presents itself to mathematicians in quantitative terms, 
the so-called, quote, three-body problem, close quote. And yet it's at work within us as a result, as a reality. We have to face the truth. Deciphering reality is not so simple, and our habit of trying to comprehend reality in such a simple and comfortable way is ultimately grounded only in our own intellectual laziness. Indeed, many things that are held to be scientific have their origin in this intellectual laziness. If we set that aside, then we have to set to work with all the care that we've tried to use in these lectures. If now and then our way of working has not seemed careful enough, again, it's because this way has been given in barest outline. So we have often had to jump from one point to another, and you yourselves have to look for the connecting links. The links are indeed there. Now we have to set to work with equal care to tackle the same problem from a different aspect. Let's approach it again from the side of the human constitution in comparison with the other kingdoms of nature. As I said before, we can imagine a bifurcation proceeding from an ideal point. Along the one branch we put the vegetal world, along the other the animal. If we imagine the becoming of the vegetal world as an extension within the actual kingdom of nature, we enter the mineralizing of the vegetal. We shall be able to imagine this as a real process if we grasp it by means of the crudest example. We encounter coal, and we recognize it as mineralized vegetal matter. What should keep us from looking at analogous processes that have unfolded within other kinds of vegetal matter, and deriving, let us say, the silicious and other components of the earth's mineral substance from such a mineralizing of something vegetal? I went on to say that we can't proceed in the same way if we're seeking the relationship of the animal to the human kingdom. Here, on the contrary, we have to imagine the relationship somewhat as follows. Evolution moves onward through the animal kingdom. Then, however, it bends back, returns upon itself, and realizes itself at a stage earlier than that of the animal. Perhaps we might put it this way. Animal and human evolution proceed from a common starting point, but the animal goes further before reaching outward physical reality. Humanity, on the other hand, holds itself back at an earlier stage and makes itself physically real there. It's precisely by virtue of this that humans remain capable of further development after birth, incomparably more so than animals. For once again, the processes of which we speak must be related to embryonic development. While in the mineral, the plant-forming process has overreached the limit of the vegetal, in humans, the animal-forming process has stopped short of the extreme. It has been retained within itself, and nature undertakes the shaping of the outer form at an earlier stage. We have then this ideal point from which the development bifurcates into one branch that is longer, arbitrarily long, and another that is shorter, a branch that one might call negatively indeterminate vegetal kingdom, mineral kingdom, animal kingdom, human kingdom. Now we must seek to understand conceptually 
what we're seeing in this formation of humans as compared to animals. The process of development is held back, thus in the case of humans. That which is tending toward realization is, as it were, made real before its time. Now, think how this process has to be conceptualized according to what I have already told you in these lectures. If one studies the contribution of the solar entity to the forming of the animal body, via embryonic development, of course, then one knows that direct sunshine, as one might call it, has to do with the configuration of the animal's head, while the indirect aspect of the sunlight, the sun's shadow in relation to the earth, as it were, has something to do with the pole of the creature opposite the head. If we consider quite rigorously the way in which the formation of the animal is permeated by cosmic sun substantiality, and really look at the forms, then we'll learn to connect it all with a certain concept that I'll try to sketch out as follows. Assume to begin with that in some way the forming of the animal is really brought about in relation to the sun. And now let's take up a conventional astronomical notion and pose the following question in light of that notion, apart from the particular constellation that will mediate the sun's effects upon the animal, is there any way that the sun could exert an effect in the cosmos that is not directly related to the sun itself? Yes, there is indeed. Every time the full moon, or the illuminated moon in any of its phases, shines down upon us, the light that reaches us is sunlight. A cosmic opportunity is being made then, so to speak, for the sun's light to ray down upon us. Of course, that's also the case during human fetal development, in our germinal and embryonic phases. In earlier stages of the Earth's evolution, it was the case that there was a direct influence then as well. What exists today as a reverberation is something that we've inherited from that earlier stage. So then here again we have an influence of the sun, direct on the one hand and indirect on the other, through the raying back of the sun's light by the moon. Now imagine the following. Again I'll draw it diagrammatically. Imagine that the development of the animal came into being under the sun's influence according to this diagram, see figure 4. This then, to put it simply, would be the ordinary influence of day and night, the head and the pole opposite the head. This would be the ordinary working of the sun in the animal. Now, take that other working of the sun's light, which occurs when the moon is in opposition, that is, when it's full moon, when the sun's light, so to speak, works from the opposite side and counteracts itself through reflection. If we conceive this as representing the direction of the direct sun rays animal formations, then we would have to imagine the formation of the animal going ever further in the sense of this direct sun ray. And the more the sun affected it, the more animal the animal would become. If, on the other hand, the moon is counteracting from the opposite direction, or if the sun itself is doing so indirectly via the moon, then something is taken away from the, in quotes, becoming animal. It's drawn back into itself, see figure 6. 
This withdrawal corresponds to the shortening of the second branch in figure 7. Thus, you see that we found a true cosmic correlate of the characteristic difference between humans and animals that I described to you yet earlier. What I have just been telling you can be perceived directly by anyone who gains the faculty for such perception. Humanity really owes this holding back of its formation to the counteracting of the sunlight via the moon. The effect of the sunlight is weakened in its very own quality for its sunlight in either case, in that the sun places its own counterpart over against itself, namely the moon and the moon's influence. Were it not for the sun meeting and countering itself in the effects of the moonlight, the formative tendency that is in us would give us the gestalt of an animal. But the sun's influence, reflected by the moon, counteracts it. The formative process is held in check through the effects of the negative, and the result is the human gestalt. Now on the other branch of the diagram, let's follow up the plant and its process of formation. Let's comprehend what the effect of the sun within the plant is. Clearly some solar effect is present. Let's imagine the sun's effect in the plant weren't able to unfold at some particular time. During the winter, in fact, the shooting and sprouting life in the plant cannot unfold. You can even see the difference in the unfolding of the plant by simply comparing day and night. Now think of this effect, which is always rhythmical, repeated endless times. What actually happens there? We have the influence of the sun and the influence of the earth itself. When the sun cannot exert a direct effect because it is hidden by the earth. At one time, the sun is at work. At another, it's not the sun, but the earth, for the sun is working from below and the earth is in the way. We have the rhythmic alternation. Sun's influence predominant, earth's influence predominant. Thus the vegetal realm is alternately exposed to the sun and then withdrawn, figuratively speaking, into the earth, drawn by the earthly, as it were, into itself. This is quite different from what we had before. For in this latter case, the solar forces at work in the plant are strengthened substantially. And this strengthening of the solar forces by means of the other terrestrial forces finds expression in that the plant gradually falls into mineralization. Hence we have to say, there's a bifurcation, such that with regard to the plant we see the effects of the sun, extended by the earth to the point of mineralization. On the other hand, the effects of the sun in animals drawn back into itself through the effects of the moon in the human being. I could also draw this figure somewhat differently like this, and there's figure 8. Then I would call this gestalt here receding to become human, here, on the other hand, advancing to become mineral, which of course ought to be shown in some other form. It's no more than a symbolic figure, but in a certain sense this symbolic figure expresses more clearly than the first, made of mere lines, the bifurcation, as again I like to call it, with the mineral and vegetal kingdoms on the one hand, the human and animal on the other. 
We never do justice to the true system of nature with all her creatures and kingdoms if we imagine them in a straight line. We have to take our start from this other picture. In the last resort, all systems of nature which begin with the mineral kingdom and proceed thence to the plant, thence to the animal, and thence to humanity, as if in a straight line, will prove unsatisfactory. In this quaternary of nature we are face to face with a more complex inner relationship than a mere rectilinear stream of evolution or the like could possibly imply. If, on the other hand, we take our start from this, the true conception, then we're led not to a generatio equivoca, or primal generation of life, but to this ideal center, somewhere between animal and plant, a center not to be found within the physical at all, yet without doubt connected with the problem of three bodies, earth, sun, moon. Though, perhaps mathematically, you cannot quite lay hold of it, yet you may well conceive a kind of ideal center of gravity of the three bodies, sun, moon, and earth. This will not exactly solve the three-body problem for you, yet within human nature the problem is solved, because humanity assimilates within its own nature what is mineral and animal and vegetal. There really does arise within human nature a kind of ideal point of intersection of the three influences. It's inscribed in us as humans. There isn't the slightest doubt that it's there. Moreover, inasmuch as it's so, we have to accept the fact that what dwells within us in this way, as human beings, will be empirically at many places at once, for it's there in every human being, every single one. Yes, it's there in all human beings, scattered as they are over the earth. All of them have to be in some relation to sun and moon and earth. If we somehow succeeded in finding an ideal point of intersection of the effects of sun and moon and earth, if we could ascertain the movement of this point for every individual human being, it would lead us far indeed toward an understanding of what we may perhaps describe as movement relating to sun and moon and earth. As I said just now, the problem grows only more involved because we have so many points, as many as there are humans on earth. And for each of these points we have to seek the movement. Yet it might be, might it not, that for the different human beings the movements only seemed to differ from each other. We'll pursue our conversations along these lines tomorrow. The end of Lecture 14